J. Guru Dave. Registration is now open for Tom's 2024 Australian tour. Once again, Tom will be giving knowledge sessions and group meditations, as well as a four-night, five-day rounding retreat in Jeringong. If you haven't learned Vedic meditation yet, Tom will be teaching Vedic meditation while in Sydney, as well as advanced techniques to those who have already learned Vedic meditation. Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at tomknowles.com slash Australia. Welcome to my podcast, The Vedic Worldview with Tom Knowles. I'm Tom, and today I'm going to answer a few questions that came in from Facebook and Instagram. And from Nadine, we have the purpose of intimate relationships and how to find your perfect match. Well, Nadine, this is a question that is in everyone's mind and on their lips. And the fact is, I think that if we could just relax, we would probably find that there are at least... 108,000, just to mention some large number at random, people who would be your perfect match. I personally am not of the view that there is only one soulmate out there amongst the 7.5 billion people that exist on the earth today. Probably there are hundreds of thousands of people who could actually suit you and who would be suited by you if we could all just relax and enjoy each other. The secret, of course, to the perfect match, so-called perfect in quotes, is really to have a willingness to surrender preferences in aid of shared experience. Having a shared experience, after all, is what an alliance, not merely a relationship, an alliance, is about. Israel and Iraq could be said to have a relationship. It's not an enviable one. It's one of enmity. I'm using that facetiously simply as an example of how we don't want simply relationships. We want alliances. To have a love alliance means to have an interest in having a shared experience with another. That means having a real interest in what it's like to be the other. In order to have that experience, we first of all have to have a spirit of inquiry. What's it like to be you? We don't have to speak that word all the time. Those words would be annoying. But to actually have that as our conscious position, where we have an interest in what it's like to be the other. And then, next, to be willing to surrender preferences we might have, if surrendering those preferences are an aid of having a shared experience with somebody. And if we're not interested in that, then I recommend celibacy and a single life. Thank you, Nadine. Now we're going to move on to James. Would you please expand on deserving power, especially with regard to this powerful quote from Gurudev? Let me mention who Gurudev is. I was trained by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, a great master from India. Spent 26 years with him. He spent 13 years with his own master, a man whom we call Gurudev, whose real name is Swami Brahmananda Saraswati, who was the undisputed and preeminent master of all the masters of India, during a period from 1939 till his death in 1953. Gurudev quoted, You deserve the best. Never feel unworthy or not justified in having the best. I tell you this is your heritage, but you have to accept it. 
you have to expect it. You have to claim it. To do so is not demanding too much. Now, as regards deserving power, I think this is the Vedic worldview about your deserving power. Part of your spiritual realization is to move into that zone where you realize that by virtue of the gifts that you've received simply by being a human, the magnificent brain, your capability, your adaptation energy, your inner stability, your desire to give to the world, that naturally, if you can find it from inside yourself, you do deserve the best. If you don't deserve the best, we have to ask the question, what do you deserve? Second best? Third best? Fifteenth best? It's always good to have the attitude that you deserve the best. And to rise to that is in fact part of your own spiritual awakening. The best, by the way, may not be what everybody else thinks is the best. It's what you think is the best. If what you think is the best is hitchhiking from Las Vegas to Los Angeles instead of riding in a first-class airplane or a private jet, that's the best. Go for that. In other words, this is a story about learning to honor your preferences. Honoring our preferences is a very valuable thing, James. Very important for us to honor our preferences. But having honored them, if we begin moving in that direction, if things don't go that way, then we also need to learn to let go of rigid attachment to specific timing and specific outcomes with the trust that nature's intelligence causes us to desire to move in a direction. Whether we actually get there or not, we may be in the ideal position to see what's next. Rigid attachment is the enemy of evolution. And so we naturally would like to see if we can experience our preference for the best. And then if somehow that doesn't come about, we need to quieten down and examine through our senses all of the perceptible environment and see what it is out there that can explain why we find ourselves in the exact situation in which we find ourselves. Now we have a question from Eric. Do religious practices deny biology and our biological impulses, such as sexual impulses? What does that mean for the role of religion in our ultimate spiritual development? Well, Eric, I think that, first of all, we need to define what we mean by religion. In my definition of it, it is re-lagare. Ligare comes from the Latin to bind you back, and re, of course, means back. The idea of religion really is to bind us back to our source, to bring us back to that place of origin deep inside of us. To what extent various kinds of very large cults that are sometimes called cultures or religions achieve this? To the extent that individualized practices may achieve this, these are all big questions. And so I think these are the questions that confront our whole world today. I can only speak from the point of view of the Vedic worldview. In the Vedic worldview, our biological impulses, our sexual impulses, are one and the same with our consciousness impulses. In fact, our biology simply is seen as a printout of our consciousness. As our consciousness is, so our biology becomes. Our biology, our body, our physiology, our anatomy, including all of its functions and its desires, are the natural products of a consciousness state that wishes to have shared experience. Sexuality in the human has a character which we can explore with sophistication. It goes beyond a simple reproductive wish. It goes into the realm of sacred spiritual experience between two people. 
I would like to refer to it as the artful unity. Artful unity means the exploration of becoming as close to one as it is possible for us to become without actually being merely one. And I say merely one because merely one is a little bit boring. We like to be as close to one as we can possibly be, and that's what I refer to as unity. Unity is not oneness. Unity is two that have become as one. As one, not quite one. So, sexuality manifests in the physiology, and of course it serves the role of reproductive characteristics, if that's all we want to look at it as, but beyond that, it also gives us a tool whereby we can explore artful unity. And I think that in the spirituality that we need to adopt, and in reference to religion as we know religion should be, sexuality should be a sacred experience, not merely the gratuitous ridding of a sensation or two that one needs to have for a few seconds. One needs to actually leverage that experience into that of the sacred act of artful unity. What I'd like to do is to invite your reactions, to invite your conversations, to invite your questions, and perhaps in another opportunity of recording we can explore some of these ideas a little further. The True Story of Karma, Part 1. In this talk, I talk about karma, what it means, and its near cousin, kriya, and what that means. These are ways of understanding the effect of action and activity, action that is conceived and constructed by the individual, or responding to activity of evolutionary nature, brought about by nature's own intelligence. There are a lot of people here who practice Vedic meditation, but I decided that I'd like everyone to be able to come, whether they have learned the technique which my colleagues and I teach or not. So in a little while, we're going to have some eyes closed silence, we'll call it that. And those of you who know how to practice the technique that you've learned from me or my colleagues, you'll do that. And the rest of you who would like to have some eyes closed silence, if you have a technique, just do that. And then having established ourselves in whatever our simplest form of awareness may be, whatever that is, then we'll go into the field of action. And action means karma. Karma is the subject of action, which I want to talk to you about. And, you know, make sure that you have a good understanding of it. To spend some time properly in karma, We have to get a proper understanding of what it means, but that's also going to entail a little bit of dispelling some cultural indoctrination about what it means. You know, I heard it this morning at the cafe where we had our breakfast just now, a little jar that said, put your money in here, it's good karma. (laughs) The karma jar. I thought, it's it's a sign. (laughs) 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 Yoga means unity. The unification of the active mind with the least excited state. The unification of that part of the mind which is active with that part of the mind which is in its simplest form of awareness. This is yoga, unification. 
there are lots of ways of attaining to the experience of yoga. Physical asanas, asana means physical action, is one of those things. And pranayama, breathing techniques, another one of those things. Loving, another one of those things. These are all forms of yoga. The kind of yoga that we just did, properly in Sanskrit, is referred to as nishkam karma yoga. Nishkam karma. That means through action hardly done. Through action hardly done at all. Hardly in Sanskrit, nishkam. It's like in English, it has those two implications. Someone might say, were you able to find a seat in Tom's lecture? And you'd say, hardly. There was hardly any room. Hardly could mean not at all, or hardly could mean barely. So in Sanskrit, nishkam karma yoga. The yoga part is the unity. That's where we're allowing our mind effortlessly to settle into its simplest form, into the simplest form of awareness, least excited state, karma. Karma means action after doing some least excited state, then you engage in action. Karma properly means, it comes from the Sanskrit root kr, k-r. An r with a dot under it has a little roll in it, so kr, kr, kr has to do with activity or action. Ma has to do with boundaries and limitations. Karma, krma. Activity or action which has boundaries on it. It's binding in some way. There's another word I'm going to teach you. Kriya. Kriya. Kriya means frictionless activity. Frictionless activity. And at the outset, there's not that much difference between activity and action but we're going to make a distinction in a few moments. There's another word I want to teach you, and I'll make sure you understand these by repetition. That's my method. Dharma. Dharma. D-H-A-R-M-A. Dharma. Dharma means your personal role in the evolution of the universe. Your personal role in the evolution of the universe. What is that which, right now, not tomorrow, not yesterday, not 20 minutes from now. What is that which, right now, by doing, you are fulfilling your personal role in the evolution of the universe? The answer to that is your dharma. And what it is that it is your dharma changes every few seconds. And every time it changes, in Sanskrit we refer to this as a Rashi. Rashi means a transition has occurred. It may have been dharma for you to eat very eagerly when you are hungry. When you're not hungry, it is no longer dharma for you to be eating like that. And so when we are living inside of the dharma stream, when we are properly in a state of consciousness where we are in attunement with what is needed 
what is the, the need of the time which can be served only by you uniquely? You have a unique offering at every given moment. If everybody in this room tried to do the same one thing right now, because you know we define this is the need of the time and we write it down on a whiteboard, priority one, priority two, priority three, then probably one person in that room of this size would be doing dharma and everybody else would be doing adharma. Adharma means not dharma. <laughs> not dharma. And so we need to be living our life in dharma. When we live our life in dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, dharma, then all action becomes frictionless. It's frictionless. It's effortless. Activity is effortless. You see a basketball player who is extremely well-trained and is just a purpose-built machine for bouncing that ball and weaving in and out of all the others that want to take it away from him. And he leaps into the air and hangs for a moment just a little bit too long to be believable and drops it into the little ring with the net on it. And he comes down like some kind of ballet dancer landing in the middle of the court. And if anybody else tried that, total failure. <laughs> Absolute total failure. He says, I was in the zone, man. And what does he mean, I was in the zone? Kriya, frictionless activity. Anybody else tries to do exactly the same thing? Sweating, falling down, a lot of goofiness. <laughs> No dharma. When there's no dharma, there's no kriya. What is there instead? Karma. Action that binds you. It binds you to something. So in short, when we are living our dharma, our activity is kriya. Kriya means spontaneous right action. Spontaneously, you're in the right place at the right time and it is easy for you even though to another it may look very difficult. Easy for you. Kriya, frictionless, effortless activity which is in complete accordance with all the laws of nature. Kriya. Karma. When you start moving out of the Kriya zone there's like curbs. Those curbs, like curbs on a road you hit that curb and you really know about it. That's the karma zone. You're going off and out of the field of kriya. Now you're in the field of karma. Action that binds you. Action that has attached to it a corrective force. We do not live in a universe that is punitive. We need to let go of that idea completely. We don't live in a universe that's angry with us. There's no angry universe. <laughs> we, we live in a universe that, <laughs> that is just hoping that we'll figure it out. <laughs> and not have to spend too many lifetimes doing so. <laughs> and in the Vedic worldview, you know, if you don't figure it out by the time you're waving goodbye to your friends, <laughs> then you get diapers again in high school and all that. 
and you keep, you know, you get, an, you, you have to repeat that grade. <laughs> you know, <laughs> someone says, "Oh, he's a very old soul." I mean, that means he failed a lot. Right? <laughs> 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 like some kind of 40-year-old who's still in 11th grade. <laughs> <laughs> old soul. <laughs> we, we, we don't want to be an old soul. <laughs> we want to be a graduate. The repetition, the ever-repeating known, ever-repeating known, ever-repeating known, ever-repeating known like that. That which already you know, but you have to repeat it again and again and again and again. Why? Because we're not alert to what research outcomes we're, we're receiving. We're not alert to the very obvious conclusions that can be arrived at. And so we go in and we do the research again, and again, and again, with the idea that <laughs> I know there must be something right about this. I just have to get it right. Maybe if I practice doing the wrong thing over and over again, <laughs> then I'll, I'll end up making that karma thing something into kriya. So kriya, karma, dharma. Dharma means your personal role in the evolution of things. When you're doing that, you live kriya, which means spontaneous right action without effort and without doubt and without wondering anything. There's no wondering. Like, I wonder if none of that. That's all gone. In Kriya, you just have a sense of you know what's right. It comes from the fine level of feeling. And the intellect is not required. So how do we get into the Kriya zone and not get into that zone where we have to be corrected by the curbing? Now, we'll get to that. But I want to tell you something else about when you hit the curbs, what happens. When you are progressing and you're not living your personal role in the evolution of things, you're not living dharma, then what happens is you end up hitting those curbs and the road gets narrower. It gets narrower. Your latitude about what you're entitled to explore gets narrower latitude. It's not that your kriya zone, which is if you think of this as a highway on which you're progressing, it's not that your Kriya zone continues to be as wide as it would be if you were living Dharma. In Dharma, when you're living Dharma, the latitude that you have to explore all kinds of ways of moving around, there's a big, fat, wide road, and there's a curb way over there, and there's a curb way over there, and you're just zooming along with freedom. But if you start hitting those curbs, what happens is the Karma zone starts to move in on you. And Kriya, the area of Kriya, the latitude that you have to be able to make a range of choices about how you'd like to spend your morning, starts getting narrower and narrower. And we know that we're living a life that is being tightly governed by the Department of Corrections. <laughs> when you rise in the morning and you don't have a choice about what you do next and you don't have a choice about what you do after that and you don't have a choice about after that. Everything becomes, you start to be 
absolutely narrowed down into the zone of you'll be doing this, followed by that, followed by that, and if there's any slight deviation, even tighter curbing, even tighter. When we find ourselves in any kind of situation like that, then what's happened is, what we have to look at first is, what is my dharma? How did I get into this thing of not having latitude, either due to health or some bizarre situation I put myself in in a particular kind of ship, the relationship? <laughs> the ship <laughs> that left and went off somewhere and you know, there's a party going on in that ship and you just don't want to be there anymore, but you can't dive overboard. That's <laughs> a long way to the coast. <laughs> you went and got on the ship. So due to some ship you were in, or due to health reasons, or due to career, whatever, or due to all these things that you've decided are the things, so you find yourself stuck. And you can't make choices except this narrow range, narrow range of choice. How do we get latitude again? How do we get those curbs to go far apart? We have to discover dharma. Dharma. What is your personal role in the evolution of things? And there's a key here. The key to what is your dharma. The key to that which, if you behave in this way, you're going to have broader latitude, you're going to have rapid pace of evolution, you're going to have the capability to have a range of choices at any given moment without hitting any curbs. To have more kriya in your life, frictionless flow of in-the-zone activity where everything is just going along beautifully. We have to have dharma, our personal role in the evolution of things, in order to have kriya, frictionless flow of activity, and not have karma, which is restrictions moving in on us all the time. And our way to find dharma is very, very simple, but it requires something. Our guru had a guru, and his name was Guru Dev, and there's a picture of him up here. I'll show you. There's two pictures of him up here. That's Guru Dev. Guru Dev was the undisputed and preeminent master of all the masters of Vedic knowledge. Vedic knowledge is the umbrella over which and out of which is sourced all yoga knowledge, Vedanta, Eastern philosophy, even Buddhism comes out of it. And there's somebody always in India who is considered the preeminent king of the yogis, master of all the masters. That was Gurudev. And he used to give this lecture that consisted of one word. People would wait for him for hours. 100,000 people, you know, wait and he'd come walking out and he'd look around and sit down and close his eyes for a few minutes and they'd be waiting for the words. And he would just look and say, Nivartatvam. And then he'd get up and walk away. <laughs> Nivartatvam, if it's taken in a kind of literal sense, could mean something like go and rest or retire. But if you allow it to have its full connotative value, it means something else. Transcend where you are. Transcend where you are. You find yourself in the field of thinking, transcend that. Go in the direction of the field of non-thinking. You find yourself a master of non-thinking, 
Don't pat yourself on the back just yet. Nivartatvam, transcend that. Come from the yoga state to the karma state. Come back to the karma state. That means come back to the field of action. Find yourself in the field of action. Go back to the field of transcendence, that which is beyond thought. Find yourself beyond thought. Go back to the field of action again. You find yourself alternating like this for a sufficient amount of time. Transcend the alternating. How do you transcend the alternating? Combine them. Integrate them so that you have both states simultaneously. Nivartatvam, transcend where you are, is the answer. What happens when you transcend where you are? You step beyond all of the assumptions that you're making and you go into the field of no assumptions about anything. Your least excited state is highly receptive to the signals from nature. And those signals are of two kinds. It's binary, very simple, no, no code to crack. Very, very simple. Charm says, move. Go towards that which is appealing and attractive. And aversion says, stay where you are and take some time, rest for a little while, and see when the charm arises. <laughs> this is how nature talks to you. Nature does not have some big, bizarre, weird code in Egyptian hieroglyphics or something that, you know, if you could finally crack the code, then you'd finally figure it out. It's not like that. Nature is very, very simple. Human instinct is very simple. We make it terribly complex, but it's actually very simple. From your least excited state, and this is the predicate, I'm predicating what I'm saying on the basis of your least excited state. From your least excited state, not from a highly excited state, from your least excited state, be open to that which is charming and don't fail to attend to that which is also not charming. I call that aversion. That which is charming, that which is not charming. This is how nature speaks to you. Charm says, begin moving in that direction. Adopt this preference. Non-charm says, if you go there, even if intellectually it makes sense, you're going to get karma. Inaccurate assumptions equals suffering. And you can reverse those two because there's an equal sign in the middle. Suffering equals inaccurate assumptions. You make an assumption. Oh, I'll get into this. It'll really make me happy. It's not all that charming, but intellectually I can see that if I keep at it for a while, then it will become charming later. Inaccurate assumption equals suffering. And it will be. It'll be suffering. And if you are suffering and you want to know why, equals inaccurate assumptions. <laughs> right? You made some assumption that was inaccurate. And how did you make that assumption? You did what 7.2 billion people are doing right now today, using their intellect only. Intellectually, it makes so much sense to put your attention on this or put your attention on that. A little side note. I was a keynote speaker at one of the symposia that was part of the G8 conference in Europe. I was the only one wearing beads. <laughs> and I, and I, I, I opened... <laughs> I opened that. that was, when was that? May or something? Was it May? Yeah, it was May in Switzerland. 
And there were prime ministers and finance ministers. I don't know why they chose me to open the thing. <laughs> I started off by saying everybody in this room is suffering from chronic brain failure. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that got their attention. <laughs> And the entire world is waiting for you to solve all the problems. So they're suffering from chronic brain failure too. Because you know, I know, and all of them know that nothing's going to come out of this conference whatsoever. <laughs> are there any questions? <laughs> That's exactly what I said. <laughs> the Prime Minister of Portugal raised his hand and he said, do you have any suggestions for us? <laughs> I said, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> and I started talking about the necessity to get the human brain functioning to its fullest potential. Because what do you want to tackle first? Economic problems in Europe? Global climate change? Terrorism? Anything that you decide is the biggest problem, you're making that assessment with an average use of 2% of your brain, which is what the world's average is right now, by the way. 2% use of the brain's total computing power because of stress. You have your iPhone, it's all filled up with programs and you know, when you first got it, it was really speedy. And then you're typing an email and the cursor is staying three sentences behind you. And you know, what's wrong with this thing? It's so slow. And why is the battery running out every three hours or two hours or one hour? And then someone says, just double click that and you'll see all the programs you've got running. And you know, there it is, you know, 54 programs, 57,000 photographs and you know, 180,000 emails are all in there all running, all those programs are running simultaneously. The human brain. And it has massive, virtually infinite potential. But it's running all these programs, stress and this, and I can't believe you said that to me, and now what am I gonna do, and blah, blah, you know, all this stuff. All these programs running. And that's right, I have to remember to learn how to play guitar. Because <laughs> 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 I bought that guitar five years ago. And how are you ever going to discover your dharma? What is dharma for you with all this noise going on in your consciousness? Noise. Go to your least excited state, nivartatvam. Transcend that. Once you've learned how to transcend that, though, there's another part of this, nivartatvam. Transcend that which you have transcended to. You've gone to the absolute state. You can't just stay in the absolute state. The world needs you. You have to come into action now. And you had better be pretty good at it and be effective. And even if I dare say it, be radical. Because read the newspaper. And look at all the things that are going wrong. Just read it. Where do you start? Where do you start? You personally have a dharma in all of that mess your personal role in the evolution of all of that. But how are you going to find it using your intellect alone when the mind is filled with all that thinking and worries and you know, I've got to do this and creating all these lists of stuff. 
all the lists of things which you've convinced yourself, you've hypnotized yourself to think, if I do that, then I'll be a fulfilled person. And actually, probably most of it is not dharmic for you. Most of the stuff on that list. How do you find what is your dharma? Go to your least excited state. That means transcend that. Come to that least excited state. From there, come back to action again. This is the yoga, followed by the kriya or karma. Go back to action and be receptive to charm. And pay attention to and be receptive to aversion. And pay attention to and be receptive to your need to be courageous. What I'm asking you to do requires courage. If you don't have courage, you'd better really have courage. Because your failure to courageously embrace that which you find charming is going to require of you an even greater kind of courage, which is the courage of facing all the problems you're about to create. It's not dangerous to move towards charm. It's dangerous not to move and embrace, move into and embrace the unknown. The ever-repeating known is not the safe place. We do the ever-repeating known because we think it's safe. It's not safe. The guided tour is not safe. (laughs) The adventure is safe. It's the adventure that's safe. What does that mean? You have to be willing to embrace that which is not inside your existing comfort zone. Because if you don't, you're going to get really uncomfortable. Really uncomfortable. Karma. The curbs will move in. So we live our life in this way. And we meditate. Go into that quiet inner state. If you don't know how to meditate, I'm going to point out this man who this little girl's running to right now. This is Christian. And this is Uma. Greentreemeditation.com. Why green tree? You can't have a green forest unless every tree is green. You can't have a green forest if you have brown trees to work with. You need to become a green tree. Greentreemeditation.com. Christian will help you discover your dharma. He'll help you discover how to meditate. He can take you from wherever you are right now to the next level. And he has a bunch of colleagues in this room too. They're too numerous to count and introduce at the moment. Dharma, your personal role in the evolution of things. Karma, that which happens to you if you don't do it. If you don't do dharma. Kriya, frictionless activity, which is totally frictionless when you're living life according to the dictates of nature charming you or nature saying, don't go there right now. A few other things. We cannot ditch expectation. Somebody raised this with me yesterday. I'm trying to live a life with no expectations. And I said, what's your expectation from that? Oh, um, that everything will be better. I said, well, you just had an expectation. Sorry. (laughs) You failed. That's a big F. (laughs) What would be better? He says, I guess it would be better not even to have that expectation. And I said, that's an expectation. (laughs) Failed. (laughs) Failed. Sorry. This whole no expectations concept, it's baloney. It's nothing. Of course you have expectations. Of course, we have preferences. We need to honor our preferences. Honor your preferences. Honor them. If things go that way, beautiful. And usually they will. 
But if for some reason things don't go that way, then as meditators, we're supposed to be good at the following. Things didn't go the way I preferred. So I let go of rigid attachment to specific timings and specific outcomes, trusting that in the larger picture, I will be informed when the timing and the outcomes are correct and I'll know what they are. But prior to that, I move in the direction of my preferences. And I move in the direction of my preferences, honoring my preferences, honor. And if somebody says to you, it's best not to have any expectation, just say what I said to them. What should I expect the result of that to be? This no expectation thing is some kind of, somebody who wasn't thinking very clearly came up with that. <laughs> not very clear thinking. So have your expectations, but refine them. Meditation does that for you. It removes the stress. It turns off all those programs, makes the big iPhone suddenly go from 2% to 100%. It gives you the capacity properly to address that which you should be doing from a universal perspective and also to pay attention to that which you don't need to be doing anymore and to let go of, let go, and allows you to expand your potential and embrace the world and to become relevant, capital R, relevant. How relevant are you right now? How relevant is it for you to continue existing, eating food, taking up space, pooping, peeing, doing your body pollution into the world, which you know is astonishing when you think of a city like this with 18 million people from edge to edge? What's the relevance? We have to make our existence relevant. And this is the way to do it, which I've just told you. <laughs>